Hi, everybody. Eve Harrow, Rejuvenation on the Land of Israel Network. It is December 11th, 2023, the 28th day of Kislev 5784. Um, we're in the middle of the holiday of lights of Hanukkah here in Israel. I'm looking, I'm looking at my menorah right now that's in my window. It's facing Bethlehem. Um, something I was well aware of when I lit the candles last night. For all that is happening, we can still we can still celebrate this holiday in public and with joy. We're not lighting in our basements and not afraid of anybody seeing it. And that's something that I do not take for granted because I know that there are Jews in other parts of the world who are laying low um, because of the anti-Semitism around them. And so with all that's happening here in Israel, we are burning our candles and burning them very, very, very brightly. So it is a mixed holiday this year. Um, there's joy. There's obviously a connection that we feel very strongly, perhaps more strongly than almost at any other time in the last 2,200 years, of an understanding of this holiday of the few against the many, of the people around us who just will not leave us alone to be who we are and who we need to be, and uh, without hurting anybody, actually quite the opposite with making the world always, always, as much as we can, at least collectively, a better place. So there's a real understanding of the War of the Maccabees that happened so long ago, a Hebrew-speaking nation here on the, in the land um, that's once again fighting for our freedom. And just a personal note before I get to our very esteemed guests, I'm very honored to have today. So last night I babysat. Um, my son and his wife were invited to a wedding of a very, very good friend of his. And since most of their friends are uh, deep in Gaza, um, so they really wanted to go. And he was also a witness under the, under the chuppah. And so I babysat for them, for their one-year-old red-headed daughter, um, Oriya. And as I'm holding her, because she was a little fussy, and I put her against me and held her before she went to sleep, I couldn't help but think of the B-Bus children, the little red-headed children, one of them, fear exactly the same age, where they are, how they are, if they're even alive. They're definitely not lighting Hanukkah candles. I don't even know if they know that it's Hanukkah. And so it was the same emotions that have been following me for the last two months, which is deep, deep, deep sadness, and also an appreciation and a joy for what I do have. And always, always underlying with prayers that this will end soon, and with no more, um, with no more casualties, and uh, and that the world will wake up. Colonel Richard Kemp, who has proven himself to be one of the greatest friends that Israel could ever ask for. I met him a few years ago when he was actually in my home with this exact same son, who now went back to Gaza this morning today. And Dr. Harold Rode, who's, uh, I'm sure many of you, you know, I've interviewed him. He's an amazing guy. And they were working with some students on a whole bunch of different things. And then we were together a few months ago, which seems like 3,000 years ago, um, for an event where I was the MC for the Michael Levin Lone Soldiers Home. And I was honored to be able to give him uh, an award, very well-deserved. So, uh, Colonel Kemp, thank you so much for joining me today. My pleasure. And you mentioned uh, rabbis and Dr. Harold Rode. I think, <laughs> I think if anyone's my rabbi, it's probably Dr. Harold Rode, although he would deny being a rabbi. He's an extremely uh, wise and knowledgeable man who's, uh, who's yes. done a huge amount for the Jewish people and also for, of course, the state of Israel. Fantastic yeah. man. And for me personally, in already many years ago, helping me understand that the way that we think in the West, the Judeo-Christian way of looking at things is not the way they see things in the Middle East. And um, 
And I think that it behooves, if people aren't there already, then it behooves them to really internalize that because the horrors of two months ago were something that most of us can't even begin to wrap our minds around how people could behave like that, and certainly not in the name of God or some ideology. And um, we don't we don't have to agree, obviously, and we don't have to understand. We just have to know that this is how they think and, and, uh, and accept it. And then act, of course, to rid the world of, of this evil. And there's absolutely no other word. So I'm catching you here in Israel. Yes, you've been here already for the past few weeks? Yeah, I've been here um, since the 9th of October. Um, and I've been based in Tel Aviv, but I've been traveling a great deal um, around the country, particularly up onto the border with Lebanon and Gaza. Mm-hmm. And um, although you mentioned that, you know, life in many respects is extremely depressing here. Um, and, uh, you know, from the time I arrived, I, I, I recognized a country that was absolutely shattered um, by what had happened on a couple of days earlier. Uh, and I can understand that I visited some of the most horrific sites of atrocities, including Kafar Aza, Starot, and Kafar Beri. And, uh, Beri. Um, but one thing that has really also struck me is the the extraordinary unity of the people in Israel. And I know that's not necessarily a normal thing. I come to Israel no, quite certainly a lot. isn't. <laughs> there's, you know, everyone has at least four or five different opinions. But mm-hmm. um, I think there's strong unity um, about what's got to happen, what Israel's got to do. And something I found deeply inspirational in my time here is meeting Israeli soldiers, uh, whether they're preparing to defend or actually in the process of defending um, Israel from Lebanon or fighting in Gaza. Uh, And these these people, very often young people, but not always, there are a lot of relatively elderly reservists as well who are doing a great deal of the fighting. And each and every one of them I've found deeply inspirational. They, they are hugely courageous. They um, are absolutely committed, despite having to put their lives on the line, committed to defending their families, their friends, uh, their homeland and their, their, their fellow countrymen uh, in a way that I think is, is really genuinely inspiring. And I've also met uh, young wounded soldiers, many of whom were amputees from this conflict. Uh, and, and many of you know many of them, those who were not so seriously wounded, uh, absolutely itching to get back into the fighting guards to rejoin their comrades. So, you know, I think in every war, our, I would say the same about British soldiers. That when you, whenever you meet them and speak to them, particularly in battle, they are inspirational, and that's absolutely no less the case for the IDF soldiers. Many of whom, as you know, and your listeners know got on the first possible plane they could back to Israel to join the fight. Mm-hmm. So for the, for my listeners who aren't aware of your very illustrious background and the reason that you have um, more than the credentials to speak about soldiers on the field and off, can you just fill in um, what you have done with your career? Yeah, I, I really, it's my favorite subject to talk about myself. <laughs> Um, we'll just grate your teeth and get through it. Yes. I'll, do it. I'll, I'll only take a couple of hours. Um, I was I was uh, in the British Army for thirty years, um, and in that time, I fought in um, Afghanistan, Iraq, Northern Ireland, the Balkans, and other places. Um, 
And that, that those conflicts, particularly, I think, Afghanistan and Iraq, bear a great deal of similarity to the fight that the IDF is doing now in Gaza, fighting very much the same enemy with the same ideology, the same heartlessness, brutality um, as, as Hamas and Islamic Jihad and Hezbollah. Um, and therefore, from, from that perspective, and not, not being Jewish, I'm actually a, a goy, and, and I'm <laughs> actually a very, very talented Shabbat boy, if anyone needs one. Um, but from that perspective, not being Israeli, uh, not being Jewish, I can bring my experience of fighting this type of enemy to the d debate on what Israel's doing. And, and there are so many lies and so many um, distortions, falsehoods, anti-Israel propaganda that dominates the, the media, university campuses, human rights organizations, some governments. And, 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 and you know, from my perspective, I'm able to try and uh, do what small amount I can to balance that. I, I also was in the um, British Prime Minister's office for uh, a few years during the latter part of my military service. My job there was uh, working on international terrorism intelligence. And in that capacity, I work very closely with Israeli intelligence and the IDF. Britain and Israel have the strongest military and intelligence cooperation. And I knew how much we benefited from what Israel does. And I learned, to, uh, does for us, that is, Britain. And I learned a great deal also about the way the IDF operates, which, which added to my um, ability to, to try and bring objectivity to the situation. Um, I, I left the British Army some years ago. I've visited Israel numerous times since then. Um, and I intend to visit Israel into the future as, you know, as, as, long, as, that, as long as they'll let me in. <laughs> I, I see no reason why you won't be let in. Um, oh, there's so many points you brought up that I want to ask you. So you, you've gone on record more than once as saying that Israel is by far the most moral army in the world. And as an Israeli mother of soldiers and just as an Israeli, and we're watching the pictures of our soldiers fighting a guerrilla warfare, you know, going into buildings where they are very much, um, very much open to terrorists who are popping out from tunnels. You mentioned the people who've been injured. So we have a lot, a lot of young men in wheelchairs now where their legs were blown off because they're being shot at by RPGs, by rocket. There's like, there's nothing to save when the bottom half of their body is blown off. And, um, and I see them going into these buildings, and I think to myself, why aren't we just bombing them from the air? Well, if there are terrorists in these buildings, and they are dressed in civilian clothes, so a lot of the numbers that are coming out are, of course, wrong, um, because, and it looks like to the world Israel's killing all these civilians. And, and my feeling is that I don't want our soldiers to die in order to save Arab lives. Is that, a, is that a terrible feeling to have when you talk about that there are similarities here between how the UK and America fought in Afghanistan? Did they fight with less finesse, care? Well, Israel, um, obviously there are two major fa factors here. One is, um, is Israel's humanity. And, you know, Israel, I know that the majority of Israelis are not observant, practicing Jews, but Judaism, from my uh, experience here, Judaism permeates so many aspects of society and means that Israel 
is, I think, above average, above well above average, is a hugely moral country with with very high moral standards. Um, and because of that, uh, it, it takes extraordinary measures to minimise the deaths of innocent civilians on the battlefield. I would say greater measures than any other army in the history of warfare has ever taken. And I'm not, not alone in thinking that among British or Western military observers. So that's one aspect. And I think if you can, if you can defeat the enemy um, with, and, like, and kill as few civilians as possible, then you have an obligation to do so. And it's an unfortunate reality that uh, in any war, soldiers are going to die. Uh, it's, it's, you know, it's terrible. It's, it's tragic. It should be avoided where possible. And commanders have an obligation, including the you know, political leaders have an obligation to, to plan and direct operations in a way that uh, incurs the fewest possible casualties of their own military forces. And, and I think that's what Israel has been doing. Uh, the other factor that, that is relevant here is that it's not possible to defeat Hamas from the air. There was a three-week air campaign which was very effective, which um, annihilated large numbers of Hamas fighters, destroyed many of their weapons and infrastructure. But ultimately, when you're fighting an enemy like this, you've got to go in on the ground. It's not. It's not. A, it's not. That's not in, in itself about saving civilian lives. It's about combat effectiveness. Hamas have to be destroyed. They cannot be destroyed from the air alone. And so that I think is um, one of the two factors involved. And I would say, I would add here that people accuse Israel of disproportionality in war. We can talk about that if you want. Mm-hmm. I would Please. say right now. I would say right now, Israel is being <clears throat> extremely disproportionate in its military actions. And by what, what I mean by that is Israel, Israel has suffered, um, I think, just under 100 military casualties in Gaza. It's over, as of this morning, it's over 100. I think it's 102. And that's just since we went into Gaza. That's not including the soldiers that were killed on the first day on October 7th. So they've suffered around 100 mm-hmm. military actually tragically. Hamas, on the other hand, have had at least 7,000 of their terrorists killed by the IDF. <clears throat> and that is disproportionate. It's absolutely right. It's exactly what it should be. War, war should be about disproportionality when it comes to combatant casualties. But I think, you know, there's, there's no doubt in my mind that Israel is, um, the IDF is absolutely on top of this war. They are behaving they're operating with immense effectiveness. They have outfoxed, outgunned, and outfought Hamas at every single turn. And there is no question, providing the fight goes on until the end, there is no question that Hamas is going to be eradicated as a terrorist threat to Israel. Mm-hmm. Well, so that's an interesting question because if Hamas is an ideology, and it's not just in Gaza, it's in the north, it's in probably it's in the west, I would say as well, including in Europe. So I mean, if we can get rid of Hamas controlling Gaza, it's one thing, but as an ideology, that ISIS ideology, I think that we shouldn't be fighting this alone. It's something that we need to have help on. So if we're already broadening this out, um, and you said you have spent time up north just this morning because I have my my red alert is set to where my children are. And so this morning at 7.14, I was woken up by the alert of where my son is in the north because they had a whole volley of things. What's your opinion on what's going to happen on the Lebanese front? Well, I, I agree with you that, um, that 
you know, Hamas represents a much wider ideology even just than Hamas. And they share the ideology of Al-Qaeda and the Islamic State and various other jihadist groups, and of course Iran. And, and that ideology, uh, in the case of Hamas, means they have to destroy and annihilate the Jewish state. They're not interested in a two-state solution. They've got to destroy the Jewish state. And then they need to go on to establish an Islamic caliphate globally. That's part of their charter as well. They, 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 they also have to kill Jews everywhere. So it is, you're right, it's a, it's a global phenomenon. And they, they are a very, very significant part of it. And people say you can't destroy an ideology. Well, we did destroy ideologies in 1945. We destroyed the Japanese imperial ideology and we destroyed the Nazi ideology. That doesn't mean to say you wipe out every single part of that ideology, but you mm -hmm. basically cripple it to the extent right. that it is no longer in power and no longer a threat. And that's what's going to be happening with Hamas. Um, you, 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 uh, and, and, and the other thing, of course, is that jihadist victories inspire jihadist attacks everywhere. And Islamic State, at their height, they inspired um, a large number of terrorist attacks, including in the UK, all around the world by their success. Um, and if Hamas was allowed to continue to, or even to achieve victory over Israel, which is not going to happen, then that would also inspire uh, much wider jihadist attacks. But to your question about the North, um, we, we, know, we know very well, uh, anyone that, that follows this situation and understands it knows very well <coughs> that Iran is behind all this. Mm -hmm. Iran sponsors funds, arms, directs Hamas and Islamic Jihad in Gaza. They do the same uh, for Hezbollah. They created Hezbollah. They maintain Hezbollah. They build up Hezbollah's strength. Something like 150,000 rockets estimated in Lebanon. Tens of thousands of very, very hardened, battle-hardened, in some cases, fighters, all of which pose an enormous threat to Israel. Israel has to deal with that threat. Um, it, it, and, and in my opinion, obviously there are political considerations as well as military considerations. But in my opinion, the IDF should drive into into Hezbollah uh, as soon as they possibly can. Maybe it makes military sense to pretty much finish off Hamas, not necessarily conclude Hamas, but at least deal with the most intensive phase, which is probably going to be over before too long. Um, and then they should turn their attention absolutely fully to Hezbollah and annihilate Hezbollah, particularly in southern Lebanon. Uh, because if they don't, Israel continues to have a gun at the head. Uh, sorry, Hezbollah mm -hmm. continues to have a gun at the head of Israel. I'm, I've been staying in a hotel in Tel Aviv with numerous refugees from Kiryat Shmona. They won't go home unless Hezbollah is dealt with. And why would they? I mean, the rockets from Hezbollah are an obvious threat, but for them, an even greater threat is the risk of. Hezbollah pouring across the border and doing a 7th of October on an even bigger scale. So that, mm -hmm. has, to be, that has to be dealt with. Mm -hmm. And I realize talking to a Brit that I'm running through an open door here, but the French seem to be very busy with trying to calm down Hezbollah, at least for now. Yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, um, I wouldn't say that the British are an open door on this. I think you know, the, 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 the French have in my view, have behaved, and I'm talking about President Macron, has behaved very badly in this situation. He's been one of the leading voices with uh, Antonio Guterres, the UN Secretary General, for oh, example, God. in 
calling on Israel for a ceasefire, um, and including last Friday the the, uh, the UN Security Council attempted resolution, which thankfully the US vetoed. Mm-hmm. That that is that is a, a disgrace, and it's a disgrace for two reasons. It it, it first of all it um, it attempts to prevent Israel from defeating Hamas, which is grossly irresponsible, and leaves Hamas intact to repeat 7th of October, which Hamas leaders have said they will do repeatedly. Um, and, and also, it, it, uh, it, I, I think, you know, even if there was a UN Security Council resolution approved to bring a ceasefire, Israel's not going to ceasefire. No, They're not going to ceasefire, and rightly. But but the other the other real danger of this these sort of calls and it's not just the UN it's, it's political leaders and others around the world demanding a ceasefire. The other danger of that is that um, it it encourages Hamas. Hamas want nothing more than uh, a ceasefire. They know they cannot survive unless the IDF stop attacking them. Mm-hmm. And, and these calls by Macron and Guterres and others, what they do actually they prolong the war. And they increase bloodshed because the IDF is now in the process of demoralizing Hamas, of, uh, of, of defeating Hamas and causing Hamas terrorists to surrender and turn against their own people. And, that, and if, if you encourage them by, by holding out this kind of hope of a, some kind of a ceasefire, then there's going to be less enthusiasm for that. There's more reluctance to surrender. And that in itself causes greater bloodshed. So it's absolutely an absolutely terrible thing. But going back to um to Lebanon, I think I think Britain, um, the British position will broadly be to follow whatever the US position is. I, I wouldn't mm-hmm. say that Britain is a slave to the US, but we're very closely allied and, and and we will, I think, usually be broadly following what they what they want. And if it's it's so it's the US really that is the only key player outside of Israel in this in this in this broader broader war mm-hmm. and so if the us unless the us succeeds in stopping israel from attacking hezbollah which i think the us want to do then unless that happens i think it, you know I, I certainly don't think um israel's going to stop doing that i think i think they're going to intensify the fight unless the us stop them. i don't think the us can can absolutely stop them from doing it but obviously there are major political issues and logistic, military logistic issues as well that come into play here. So the US has a voice, but I hope any any opposition to uh, Israel attacking Hezbollah is overcome. Mm-hmm. Well, in the meantime, we have the United States being attacked as well, which is getting very, very little news play uh, in Iraq and in other places. Then we have Yemen also attacking ships and shooting almost daily towards a lot. It looks like this is going regional, even while some countries are trying to stop that. How do you see that? I, I think the President Biden's foreign policy has been characterized by weakness. Mm-hmm. And it really began his first major policy, foreign policy blunder as president was the catastrophic withdrawal from Afghanistan, which mm-hmm. was absolutely humiliating for the Americans and the NATO, their NATO allies, as well as being devastating for the Afghan people. But um, that, and, it, and it, it, it essentially it set the stage for the presidency so far. And I think you can attribute Putin's invasion of Ukraine to American weakness in Afghanistan. I think there's a direct relationship there. 
and and and, and I believe he he recognised that Biden was weak and wouldn't be really effective in the war in Afghanistan in Ukraine, and, and I think that's proven to be true. Yeah. Yes, the US have provided significant military and financial aid and diplomatic support to Ukraine, but not enough, not enough, out of fear and weakness. And 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 I also believe that you can attribute uh, Afghanistan and uh, sorry, you can attribute the Hamas uh, massacre on the seventh of October, in part at least, to Afghanistan and to Ukraine. And and I think it encouraged these events encouraged um, Iran and Hamas to launch this attack. And there is a um, there is a, a expression that strength deters weakness provokes and indeed Absolutely. president biden's weakness has strongly provoked despots or despots around the world and, and and so going back to the point you made about yemen and uh iraq syria and other places where u.s forces have been attacked by iranian proxies um without a, a strong response to that it's going to continue and it's going to expand the u.s should be you know if you take yemen as an example Yemen's fired a number of missiles into Israel or towards Israel, which have all been intercepted. And in fact, one of them, just to show the sort of the seriousness of the situation, two of them, as far as I'm aware, maybe more, but certainly two uh, Houthi missiles fired from Yemen were intercepted by Arab missiles in space, which out, outside the Earth's atmosphere, which is the first ever example of space warfare in history. Um, and uh, and so, and, and I, from what I can, from what I understand, I don't think the Houthis in Yemen present a, a very significant threat to Israel, because Israel has the capability of defending against them. Obviously, they have to be dealt with. What they do present a threat to is um, is international trade. Right. They present a threat. The the the, uh, the Red Sea, which they've been attacking shipping in. Um, it is extremely important global artery, and and it, and it it has a very very damaging effect on international trade, which has to be dealt with by the U.S. The U.S. is the only power that can really deal with it. And the the other factor I think to bear in mind, the other thing about the Houthis is they've they've repeatedly attacked Saudi Arabia and the UAE in the past. And if they, when this war finishes with in Gaza and maybe in Lebanon as well, when it when it concludes. I think there's a high likelihood that the, uh, the, the the normalization of relations between Israel and Saudi Arabia is going to proceed again. It might not, but I think it's quite likely. Um, let's not forget that Saudi Arabia, the UAE, pretty much all the Arab states are right behind Israel in this fight. They want, whatever they say publicly, they want Hamas to be destroyed because it represents a threat to them. But if this, I think you know, many people, including me, are of the view that this uh, this war was launched by Hamas on, on Iran's orders, partly at least, probably significantly, to disrupt the normalization process between Israel and Saudi. And therefore, if that process resumes afterwards, who's to say the Houthis are not going to resume their and, and even strengthen their attacks against Saudi Arabia and potentially the UAE as well, uh, which is which would be a further disruption of what's, what's set to be a, a much more stable and secure order in the middle east so you know so by by being afraid to retaliate against those people who are attacking us uh, whether it's houthis whether it's other proxies around the region that just encourages more
And then, of course, you mentioned Iran, the head of the snake, and their nuclear capabilities, which would put everything on a completely different footing <laughs> if, they, if, they, if they get there to that threshold. Yeah, and again, that's, that, you know, President Biden, as another example of his craven foreign policy weakness, has, has been hell-bent on appeasing Iran yeah. in, order to, in order to resurrect um, uh, Obama's nuclear deal in some form which was, of course, abrogated, rightly abrogated by President Trump. Uh, and, and in order to try and achieve that nuclear deal, which is actually not in any way something that would stop Iran getting a nuclear weapon, quite the opposite, uh, he's, he's unfrozen billions of dollars of, of uh, Iranian assets, which again have been helping to fuel the war, including the war against America. So it, you know, none of, this, none of this makes any sense to, to a rational human being. Mm-hmm. So just a, a couple of little points I just noticed this morning, it was actually published on the BBC, that um, a lot of people aren't aware that Pakistan is the, in the middle of throwing out quite a few uh, Afghanis back to their country, people who've lived there for many, many decades, including those who fought with um, the Allied forces in Afghanistan and were promised that they would be safe. And if they, if they go back to Afghanistan, they're, of course, going to be killed or jailed or nothing good is going to happen to them. Um, what is your feeling on that? Well, one thing we shouldn't forget in this consideration is that um, the, the Taliban in Afghanistan would not have been anything like as powerful a military force fighting against Americans, British and others if it wasn't for the direct support they received from Pakistan. Pakistan has been on the side of the Taliban for uh, forever. Mm -hmm. And, and, and that's, that's kind of almost a side issue. But in relation to your direct question, I think um, it, it's... It, Britain does have a responsibility, I think, to, as far as it can, to, um, to, to, to support these people, particularly those who worked in special forces or as interpreters or whatever for British forces in Afghanistan and the US in, for the same, for the, in relation to their people. Um, and, it, and that responsibility is a moral responsibility because these people, um, played a major role, a really important role in our fight in Afghanistan, and they saved many British lives uh, by their actions. And it's also, I think, a more kind of practical transition, uh, transactional responsibility as well, because if, you, if, a, if a country is seen to abandon mm -hmm. local people who help them in a conflict, then what does that do next time you need local people to help in another conflict yeah. we're not going back into afghanistan but somewhere else in the world it obviously is not going to help you recruit people like that so i think we have an obligation to help if we possibly can mm -hmm. ehud barak did the same thing in 2000 when he pulled israel literally overnight out of lebanon leaving the southern lebanese army who had really been helping israel for many years just left them there and uh, some of them were brought into Israel, but many of them, one of my daughters actually served in the army because he then joined the Israeli army with, um, it was Christian named George, I think, if I'm not mistaken. And she heard a lot from him about, you know, what that was like and what it felt to be abandoned after really risking their lives because they didn't want their country to be taken over by Hezbollah, which, of course, is what ended up happening uh, in the internecine war between Christians and Muslims there. We know exactly what Lebanon looks like today. And uh, so that is something that, you know, 
the Barack government, I'm not going to say all of Israel, but definitely the Barack government also did. That is not, not one of our high points when it comes to, um, when it comes to uh, political decisions. Um, what do you think, if you're willing to share, you know, one of the questions that's coming up is what happens to Gaza on the day after? Okay, we beat Hamas however long it takes. They're out. Um, there are these two, apparently two sets of major sets of opinions. One is that the Palestinians are this lovely little group of people who got taken over by Hamas, and they, are, they have actually suffered more than anyone else. And you see the trucks coming in and Hamas taking the food, and they've kind of been held hostage, if you will, by Hamas. And so on the day after, they get to go home, Somebody puts in some kind of Jeffersonian government in there, and and then they become decent neighbors. And then there's the other opinion, which is that they are all really complicit. It was happened. They may hate Hamas today, but that's only because Hamas provoked Israel to destroy their homes. So there's that. There's the idea that perhaps the world, if they are so upset about what's happening, would offer to take some of them in, that Egypt would open the border crossing and let them at least temporarily into the Sinai so that Israel can finish off Hamas without having to worry about the civilian population that Hamas is hiding behind. And there's just a whole lot of issues here. So I would imagine that you have somewhat of an opinion, perhaps, <laughs> on what is on what is going on there in Gaza and you know, none of us are prophets, and, and we don't know what's going to be the day after. But but what did it? What is it that we're even working towards? Because I know Israelis who feel that like they're not. You talk about your the people in the hotel with you from Kiryat Shmona, which is a northern town, but the people around Gaza are not going back if Hamas is is on the other side of the fence. They're, that's not happening again, and they want to go back home. So who's on the other side of that fence? Even not Hamas, even just so-called uh, innocent. There is such a thing, um, Palestinians. So, you know, what is what is your feeling on on what might be happening in Gaza in the long term? Yeah, I think in in terms of um, e- Egypt allowing uh, Palestinian civilians into Egypt, um, it's a. Uh, I can understand why Egypt's reluctant to do that. Absolutely understand it because the, the they have, the, the Palestinian people are. A radicalized people. They've been radicalized against the West and against, and indeed in many cases against, well, against Israel and, and in many mm-hmm. cases the West and its allies, including Arab countries. Um, so they do, they would present a threat. That would have to be handled very carefully. But one thing that people don't necessarily appreciate is that, that Egypt actually has a legal obligation to open its borders. It's not a question of whether they want to or don't want to. Legally, they are required to open their borders. To, uh, to to Palestinian refugees in exactly this situation. They are party to, they're a member of the African Union and they're a party to an African Union refugee convention, which legally binds them to do so, much more than the international refugee convention that, that people know about. So that's, that's some, you know, that's... That's not something that's being spoken about. That's an amazing piece of information. Yeah, it is. And it's it's... It's something that I think should be used to apply pressure to the Egyptians when it comes to this. But as I said, I can understand why the Egyptians are reluctant. Mm-hmm. And I think if, there's, if there is to be any resettlement of Palestinian civilians in the longer term, I know you were talking about temporary access into Egypt, then certainly the West should not be taking Palestinian refugees in. Um, if anything, the they should, Arab countries, Arab countries in the Middle East, near, nearer to their 
where, where they originated from, should be taking them in. And again, I can understand what the reluctance in that because Hamas, and, and don't forget that the vast majority of Palestinian citizens are supporters of Hamas, as indeed are, I think, the a significant majority in Judea and Samaria as well. Yes. Um, and, and, and Hamas is a part of the Muslim Brotherhood. The Muslim Brotherhood is a direct threat to pretty much every Arab country in the region. So who would want to take them, frankly? I mean, I, I have enormous sympathy for the Palestinian people. They're suffering terribly in this war, brought, about, brought upon them by Hamas. But it is a, it's a, almost an insoluble problem as to what happens to them. In terms of after the war, let us say that Israel destroys Hamas as a threat to Israel. And that means they either they kill them, they uh, take them prisoner. And, and as we know, there are very large numbers of Hamas mm -hmm. terrorists surrendering each day now. Um, or they escape somehow. They get out. They, maybe they, they leave Gaza as the PLO left Lebanon in 1982 and go somewhere else where I don't ask me that question. Mm. But, but let's say they're, they're, they're eliminated. Then, of course, the next phase, not necessarily the next phase, maybe the current phase has to be the elimination of the Hamas leadership in Qatar, in, in, in uh, Turkey, in Lebanon, um, and, and in Judea and Samaria. Wherever they are, they have to be taken out by Israel. I think a, I would envisage an operation similar to the the operation that Mossad carried out after the 1972 Munich Olympic massacre, where these people are tracked down and eliminated. And that has to happen as part of the, 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 the removal of Hamas as a threat to Israel. But still, even after that happens, or even while that's happening, there is going to be a successor to Hamas in, in Gaza. They are going to rise again, whether it's called Hamas or it's called something else. They are going to rise again in some form. Um, and, and therefore, that can't be allowed. That can't be allowed to happen. And so, Israel, the IDF have to remain in Gaza. I would say almost in perpetuity. Uh, I don't see an end to it. And whether that means you have a permanent IDF presence inside Gaza itself, as for example in Judea and Samaria, or whether you, let's say, create a, a buffer zone inside the border of Gaza, and the idea and where no one is allowed to to live or move. Um, and, and the IDF has complete freedom to move in and out of, the, of Gaza at its will to, to, to suppress this uh, rise of the successor to Hamas. That has to happen. There's no, there is no alternative to that. There can't be an international force of any sort that takes on that responsibility. There might be some kind of international security force that operates in Gaza, but the IDF would have to oversee the whole thing because it cannot, Israel cannot rely on the UN, on the EU, on any Arab, feel, yes, we've had that. Can't rely on any of those people to, 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 to protect it. So it has to maintain that, and therefore, I think, you know, for the for the, certainly for the foreseeable future, we're going to see um, it, the IDF in Gaza. And uh, I, I, I don't, I won't bore you with with my thoughts on the reconstruction of Gaza, which is obviously going to happen. But that's that's I think that's a separate issue. It's, it's got to be brought about in some way. Uh, and that's, I would say, a, a responsibility of the international community, um, and particularly the Arab world.
Mm-hmm. I haven't, you know, everyone talks about how terrible it was and it was an open air prison and that's why, not everyone, but too many people, that's why they were forced to commit the atrocities of October 7th. And I've been watching some of the videos, you know, the houses are very nice. The public buildings are quite nice and nobody's talking about that. The the, the hospitals are as modern as you're going to find anywhere else. So it, it doesn't seem to be like they were suffering in some massive refugee camp. You know, you mentioned Judea and Samaria, and that's where I live, and that's where another half a million Israelis live. So the army is here, but we are here as well. And yes, having Jews live in an area doesn't preclude Israel leaving. We saw that in 2005 when the 9,000 Jews who were living in Gaza were taken out of our homes. But, you know, we're not going anywhere here yet. And I'm not so sure that people are aware that we were. There's definitely been an uptick on the violence here. There have been um, there have been messages that have been sent out that to perpetrate what happened on October seventh on the Jewish communities in Judea and Samaria. They actually talked about having shooting attacks a few days ago, and within two hours they had shooting attacks exactly where they said they were going to do them. So we're quite aware of what's happening here. Um, the communities are as secure as we can be, and the, but the army is busy, and the roads are always our weak link. Um, and that's, so, you know, just to be aware that this is, and as you said before, Hamas is here. So I'm not so sure that getting rid of, get gridding, getting rid of the leadership solves the problem because so many of the people here themselves are wedded to that um, to that idea. Just one thing you mentioned, Turkey. So we had talked about Dr. Harold wrote at the beginning of the interview, and he came out with a very interesting article just a day or two ago about how Erdogan might be interested or could be convinced to take in some people from Gaza, not because he cares so much, but because within Turkey, he has a Kurdish problem. He he wants people to be loyal Arab, well, not Arabs, but Turks. But the Kurds have not integrated um, the way he wanted them to. They've got their own culture. But the Gazan Arabs could perhaps help him in that kind of t- seesaw that he's on in Turkey. And so um, they would they would be a good fit you know, in Turkey. So just, there's so many different ideas being bandied about, but I know your time is short and I did want to ask you um, perhaps more of a personal question. You mentioned that you were a Shabbos Goy at the beginning, um, which for my listeners who don't know what that means, it means that there are observant Jews who, like myself, we don't turn on lights and we don't do things like that on the Sabbath. So every once in a while, there's someone who's not Jewish who's around and, um, you know, can help out um, in that case. And it's, it's kind of a joke, but it's not really a joke. Um, but you, I, we've spoken about this before, that you, have, that you uh, are Catholic. And in the experience that I've had, with Catholics, not meaning to be offensive to you or to any of my listeners, um, I find that Catholics tend to be less pro-Israel, less sympathetic to Jews than other streams of, um, let's call it broadly, Christianity. Um, and I know that that's a very, very broad term. Um, and and from my from my understanding, and and please help me out here, um, is because very many Catholics are not familiar with what I call the Bible, what some people call the Old Testament. So the story kind of starts in the middle, and there's no you know, understanding of the special relationship that God has with the Jewish people and, of course, with, with Israel. Yet you have, I don't think that if we try to, to make a person who is more um, 
understanding, sympathetic, and is so vocal about your feelings for Israel and the Jewish people. I, I don't know if we could get any better than you, Colonel Kemp. Where does it come from? Where does that come from? From just a rational soldier mind? Um, something deeper than that? Well, I'm, I'm, I was taught when I was very young to, to know right from wrong. And I was also taught that if I'm in a position to, to rectify something that is wrong, um, then I have a duty to do so. If I, obviously, I can't do, you can't do everything, but where you can, you have a responsibility, I think, a moral responsibility to do so. Um, so that's the sort of, I, th I would say, the start point. I recognize the, um, the, the, the rectitude of Israel's position and situation, and I also rec recognize the, um, the horrific lies and distortions that are told about what Israel does. Israel's illegitimate, Israel's stolen Palestinian land, Israel is um, illegal settlers, illegal occupiers, they're an apartheid state, all of which are absolute lies. Um, and, and I suppose, from my perspective, above all, Israel carries out war crimes. And if I'm able, as I am, to to speak up against that or to carry, take any action to to uh, oppose the, 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 the lies and the distortions and the wrongdoing against Israel, then I, I have to do so. And one of the reasons, one of the kind of, I suppose you could say, one of the um, practical reasons to do it from my point of view is that um, is, I, I mentioned, I think, before that I, I worked for a while in the Prime Minister's Office on international yes. terrorism intelligence. And the IDF and Israeli intelligence uh, were very, very helpful from my personal experience to the UK, um, it, it, both in terms of saving civilian lives inside the UK, providing intelligence to the British government, which enabled terrorist plots to be prevented. Um, Providing intelligence that prevent that protected soldiers on the battlefield in around the world, including incidentally in Northern Ireland, um, and uh, on top of that, you know, hugely beneficial military technology, um, military uh, assistance, of tactical and, te and uh, procedural assistance that has been that has saved many British soldiers' lives. All of these things are, are, are ways in which, in my personal experience, Britain has benefited from Israel. I'll give you one example of that, just one example I could give you many, and that is I visited in hospital um, in the UK several years ago at the height of the Afghan campaign, a young 18-year-old soldier who, who lost uh, a leg, lost an arm, lost an eye, very, very badly wounded. A few days later, he was evacuated to Britain after being blown up by a bomb in Afghanistan. There he was in hospital, I visited him. And he knew, that young man knew, that he was alive today because of Israeli battlefield medical technology, because he'd been administered a blood clotting agent that had, was the most powerful in the world, developed by Israel, that had saved his life. And there are many other examples in which Israel has been uh, a tremendous friend to Britain. Uh, and so when I, after I, left the armed forces, I was then in a position to um, to use the media platform that I developed in relation to Afghanistan and Iraq uh, to, to try and do my best to get out the truth about Israel, particularly from a military perspective. So that's where it really comes from. I mean, there, there, are, there, are, there, are, there are Christian Zionists who 
strong, strongly support Israel for, for religious reasons. That's not mm-hmm. my reason. I am a Christian, I'm a Zionist, but I wouldn't class myself as a Christian Zionist. I, I'm not a Zionist because of the Bible. Obviously, I, you know, the, it, it's, um, it's, it supports Zionism in every respect, but that's not really my primary motivation. I, I'm not, I'm not, um, not Ord Wingate or one of these other um, British Christians who, and, and people like Lord George, David Lord George, the Prime Minister in the First World War, whose strong motivation in, in both and many other cases is, is a religious one. That's not, not my motivation for mm-hmm. uh, doing a small amount I can do to help us. It must, is it difficult for you as a Brit to see some of the most egregious attacks on Israel and some of the biggest lies are actually being perpetrated by the, the news services, the BBC and Sky News, coming from England? Yeah, it, it's, it's, um, it's, a, it's a real problem. And, uh, and, and, and I think, you know, we, we all know about the, the, the lies told and the distortions and the bias in the BBC, which I think the Simon Wiesenthal Centre rated as, um, I think it was number two, it might have been number three, but I think it was the number two um, anti-Semitic organisation in the world. Wow. Number one was Iran. The BBC was number two a few years ago. That is um, shocking. Yeah. And um, so that, that's, that, that is terrible. And it's, it's, it's not only terrible. I mean, maybe it's even less important for Israel, but it certainly... Uh, makes a terrible contribution to the life of Jews who live in the UK, who 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 c- come under horrific anti-Semitic attacks, and and that's multiplied immensely since this war began, mm-hmm. to a quite a large extent, not not exclusively, but to quite a large extent by the propaganda churned out by the BBC and other media. But the the other one other thing that actually does anger me enormously is is our own politicians. And I don't just say UK politicians, US as well and others, when they repeatedly come on the television, make speeches saying, we have called on Israel to observe the laws of armed conflict. We, we have asked Israel repeatedly to, uh, to minimize civilian casualties in Gaza. They, they don't, Israel doesn't need that kind of lecture. Israel does a better job than their own armed forces do in achieving that. They don't need to be told that. We know why. I mean, and these these political leaders know that they know it only too well. They they say it in order to appease the anti-Israel element of their electorates. Um, but but it's also very dangerous because it also provokes anti-Semitism. So it's. I think it's it's. I can understand why they do it. I don't agree with why they do it. I understand it, but I think it's grossly irresponsible. Well, then you have an organization such as the Red Cross which um, is worried about the Palestinians. They, they were not able, as far as anyone knows, to see the hostages that are still there. From what we understand from the few hostages that were let out, the medications that the families gave to the Red Cross never made it. Hamas just simply said no when the Re- if the Red Cross even asked to see the hostages. So I mean, how do you explain an organization that is just so... Look, I know that Bernadette Healy from the American Red Cross, she actually quit her position as the head of the American Red Cross many years ago because of this stance, that they wouldn't let Magen David Adom, they wouldn't let the Israeli version of, you know, the, the Star of David. They let the Red Crescent in, which is the Islamic, the Muslim country's version of, but they wouldn't let Israel in. So it seems that this organization, which everyone thinks, wow, the Red Cross and the helping everybody, it, you think they're actually anti-Israel? Or they simply don't know what to do? There's no question 
question. I mean, for one, one, one issue, I think, is that I, I ver I'd be very surprised if the Red Cross was actually allowed to do anything by Hamas. Hamas is not a, a government in any reasonable sense. They, they, they don't have a, a shred of humanity among them, even for their own people. They're not going to let the Red Cross uh, aid Israeli captives. Uh, but, but also these organizations, and, and the Red Cross inside Gaza itself is not the Red Cross. They, they, they are they're, they're Hamas. They're, they're controlled by Hamas. Um, and and, and there's certainly those who are not kind of have allegiance to Hamas, they're intimidated by Hamas. They shouldn't be seen as the, in the same light as the Red Cross broadly. But the, the, Red, the, the Red Cross, Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch, the United Nations, all of these groups have been captured by decades and decades of anti-Israel propaganda. And it, it doesn't matter what Israel does. It's irrelevant what Israel does. Uh, Israel is in the wrong. As, we, as I said before, Israel is an apartheid state. It's illegitimate, all the rest of it. Mm. Um, and, and, and they believe it. So even atrocities like the 7th of October does not change their thinking. Um, and it, it's a thinking that doesn't just dominate these organizations I mentioned. It's absolutely dominant on university campuses across Europe and across the United States and elsewhere. And we saw it only recently with the, I think, the president of, um, well, I forget which one, one of the Ivy League universities in the US. Um, Harvard, yes. Harvard. yes. And, and several of them who, who, who said that, you know, when asked whether um, calling for the genocide of the Jews was a bad thing, well, it depends on the context. I mean, this is, this is in their thinking, it's in their DNA. It's like, it's like support for um, Hamas and hatred of Israel is in the DNA of the Palestinian people. In a different way, these organizations um, and many, many students and adults and goodness knows what else around the world have been indoctrinated in exactly the same way over decades and decades since the 60s. Yeah, yeah. I, a few weeks ago, I interviewed professors of Magan of Barilan University, whom if you haven't met, I would strongly suggest you do. Fascinating man. And he said that he used to work with deprogramming um, people who were in cults and that this woke ideology, whatever you want to call it, is actually harder to get out of people's heads than people who are in cults. So I think it's, it's really kind of a, a sickness. So I want to thank you so much, Colonel Richard Kemp, for everything, just for everything, if that's okay, just to make it neat and easy. Um, just We talk about Hanukkah being the holiday of lights. And I'm reading all over the place how light will always banish the darkness. But the truth is that, oh, okay, that's Tel Aviv. We're, Two of my daughters live. Sorry about that. Red alerts. Um, but it takes a long, it takes a, a lot of fighting in order to get there. So um, thank you for everything that you've done for the front that you are on, which uh, unfortunately not too many people are sharing your space, but I hope that they will. And just happy holidays to you. And for, again, as an Israeli and as a Jew, you're probably my favorite Shabbos boy. Colonel Richard Kemp, Colonel Richard Kemp, thank you. Uh, everyone, Eve Harrow, Rejuvenation on the Land of Israel Network. If you're celebrating Hanukkah, I hope it is a joyous holiday. Here in Israel, we are celebrating. We are crying, but we are celebrating. Take care, everybody, and goodbye for now. Hi, this is Goel Jasper, host of Return Again, the Land of Israel Network's newest podcast. 
Return Again is a show about Aliyah, but not Aliyah in the way you've always heard about it. You see, I've been into the topic of Aliyah for a lot of years. And one thing that always got me was that all the shows, articles, interviews, all they talked about was Aliyah with rose-colored glasses. And while I'm a huge fan of living in a land promised to our forefathers, I believe there's so much more to learn about living here by having more in-depth conversations with those who have lived in Israel long enough to have perspective. That's Return Again, a long-form podcast where we explore what life is really like for those who have picked up their lives and brought them here. We always start at the beginning so that we can understand how that person arrived here and then, once we have the whole story, we ask a series of rapid-fire questions, things as mundane as whether the guest uses Heinz or Israeli ketchup, and as profound as, is Aliyah for everyone? You'll be amazed at how sometimes the simplest question results in the deepest, most inspiring answer. I hope you enjoy it, and who knows, maybe I'll interview you someday. After all, the whole idea of Return Again is to understand what life is really like here in Israel, and your story might just be the one that changes someone else's life forever.